we're, we're going to keep going through Colossians. Um, we've been digging into Colossians so far, and we're just slowing down in this section uh, to, to really hear God speak to us. We've, hit, we've had the theology. We've had this, this understanding that Jesus is the great king, that he is, he is God himself who made the whole world. He's made existences by him and for him and through him, and yet... He then came to this earth to die for us, to, to, to reconcile the world to himself. Um, so we've got that beautiful, big, deep theology that we've been united with him now, and then now we're sort of doing the hard yard, slowing down and working it out. Now, you might have noticed that this section, so we're in 3 verses 18 and onwards to sort of 4 verse 1, you may notice that that section almost looks like a set of rules. And, and in fact, it almost is. And for some of you, you might be thinking, hold on, but isn't that what the Old Testament was like, isn't that like the law in the Old Testament? We're trying to get away from that, a list of rules? Well, no, yes and no, not really. Um, I've, got a, I've got a quote here from C.S. Lewis, right? I want you to tell me what you think of this. So I'm going to give you just the first half and then give you the second half. And I'll see what you reckon. If the home is to be a means of grace, as in a, a, way, to, you know, a way for God to bless us, if home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. What do you reckon? Yeah, no. Uh, the, and I'll, I'll finish the quote because the quote helps you get what he's, where he's coming from. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. You might have uh, <laughs> be thinking instantly about the person you might think of as that person in your family, <laughs> the, uh, the unconscious tyrant. Um, but if we don't set up a rule of law in our country, then we end up being ruled by the most powerful, most immediate presence, Right? That's how it works. Uh, and uh, it could even be the parent in a family, maybe. You see, have you ever found yourself cutting off your child because you already knew what they were going to say and they were wrong anyway, and so you sort of just cut, cut in on them? In a way, you really wouldn't with an adult in your workplace. You see, the rule of law helps us to not cut corners because we actually remember, no, 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 my, my, my child needs to be listened to. Regardless of whether I think that they, you know, I'm impatient, we've got to get somewhere, I know what they're going to say anyway, and I just feel like I can't interrupt them because, well, they can't talk back to me anyway. The rule of law restrains us. So a constitution provides framework within which we understand our roles and our responsibilities, and then, as Paul said in the last section, it's the love that allows us to use those, use those to bring goodness and blessing and completion. So that's, that's what we're going to use this sort of section for, these next few weeks for. We're going to be looking at these, these rules and but thinking of them as ways that we can structure that allows us to love really, really well. But today, as you might have seen, passage 3, 18 and 19, the rubber hits the road in marriage. Marriage. Not men and women generally. So single people, this is not describing your relationships with each other when you're not married to each other. This is marriage. And to understand marriage, we're going to need some context. We're going to need to know the story of marriage. See, marriage has a story as well. And to do that well, to hear the story of marriage, we're going to need to do a couple of things. Critique our assumptions and then let God set them right. So we'll start by critiquing a couple of assumptions. Um, uh, so those of you who are sort of philosophy or history nerds, you might know that in the 50s, uh, postmodernism began to compete with modernism as a worldview. Uh, and postmodernism argued that absolute truth claims were always grabs at power. So that the, the intention of any time someone said, no, this is the truth, it's to oppress the vulnerable and so that you can have your way. The person who controls the narrative has the power. And because, because we all know power corrupts, well, then it was inconceivable that anyone who had power wouldn't use that to their advantage over and against the vulnerable. That's, that's the kind of the theory of postmodernism. So anyone who thinks there's an objective truth 
you're making a power claim and you're probably doing it to bolster your spot at the expense of other people. So in the West, the concepts of concept of submission became more and more ugly, unattractive. And we've seen so much abuse of power that the concept of willingly submitting to someone became pretty unthinkable, really. Uh, submission is a dirty word. And because power and privilege are synonymous with abuse, well, well, I mean, if you can understand it. Anyone who's seen that happen, if you've ever seen power abused, well, you feel that pretty viscerally, don't you? You feel that in your guts, how wrong that is. Now, that's actually a little bit of a change, though, historically speaking. Because if you read Colossians 3 in the 1940s about wives submit to husbands, that's not particularly controversial. Well, at least the wives submitting to husbands bit's not. Maybe the not be harsh and love bit might have been. But, but if you read that out in the Elizabeth Street Mall today, and you might, you might find there's a little bit of a kerfuffle if you read it loud enough. Now, we need to be strong to stand... Sorry, we need to stand strong against untruths that are out in the world. But we've got to be discerning in the way that we do so. I'm just trying to, just trying to get through some assumptions first. I'm sorry if this is... If this is just, just bear with me. Keep coming with me. See, it's not as simple as saying, well, we know the world is going to be against Christians, so whatever the world thinks, we've got to fight against that. That's actually too simplistic. It's clear to me that the world's wrong, so I'm going to be God's person in fighting against it. Uh, this is where postmodernity actually has something helpful to offer modernity, and that is humility. A little skepticism about how much we think we know. You see, for any conviction that you or I hold, are you sure that it's what the Bible really says? Have you got chapter and verse for it? Or is it possible that there's actually an assumption behind it for us. Are there possible that our assumptions need to be critiqued in the light of Scripture as well? See, what postmodernism rightly asked of modernism is when, you, when there are these things you just know and you say you just know, maybe is it possible that you're blindly or even selfishly following your own assumptions or your own history? So, we can't simply take the world's narrative or simply take the opposite of the world's narrative just because our personal knowledge is also biased and problematic. So this is the humility that, that uh, places like Proverbs 18 or Jeremiah 17 asks us to have. We need to listen to God carefully. Allow him to change our minds and our categories even sometimes. To listen to him. Conform our hearts and minds to him. So that's what we're planning on doing. I'm gonna, we're going we're to kick into the story of marriage. We're going to try and, and do that. Hear God's plan for his world in the story of marriage. Um, now, marriage has a story through scripture. And um, we're going to pick out the fact that the it's got a start and a middle and an end. And they're not the same. So it's not quite the, the story of just saying, oh, I'm just going to pick up the Bible. and What does it say in marriage? The, the story of marriage has got a start, a middle and an end. And picking that up is going to help us. So we're going to start at the beginning, for it is a very good place to begin. And Genesis chapter 1. Now, oh, I didn't turn my clicky thingy on. I'm so bad at that. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. When God first talks about ruling and submission, it's here in Genesis 1. As we read it, I want you to listen carefully for who gets to rule and who submits. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Did you notice that the image of God is a role, a job, a task? We'll make them to rule, verse 26. We'll make them in our image, verse 27. We'll make them to rule, verse 28. Classic Hebrew, chiasm, parallel kind of poetry. Male and female alike. Now, you may not realize it, but stop and think. That's incredibly progressive, in inverted commas. That's absolutely unique for the next 2,500 years of human history. In some, in some cultures, men were images of God, mostly just the king, um, but almost never women. This is very unique. And yet it's also incredibly conservative, in inverted commas, because it locates maleness and femaleness in God's intention and in our created being rather than in my choice of expression. You see that? So they're both equally God's image, equally ruling the world. The two are equally required in order to have God's image be completely revealed for people to see what God is really like. And marriage's story starts here, not with human desires. It starts with the purpose of revealing the creator God to his creation. That's the start. Genesis 2, chapter 2 of marriage. In the Genesis 2 version of the story, we get the man created first. This is the reading we had. And Genesis 1 helps us not to underread and not to overread the fact that the man is created first. So God makes Adam, notices he's alone, lonely even. Uh, and this is not good. Lonely man, not good. So for the first time, and definitely not the last time in history, a lonely person is told, Look, why don't you get a cat? God brings Adam a cat. Adam names the cat. In fact, God brings all the animals to Adam. <laughs> He's a crazy cat man. He's got, he's got animals everywhere and he names them, classifying them. But none of them is right. None is suitable for him. And so God creates woman from one of Adam's ribs and brings her to him. Now, now that can be read to think of as Eve as secondary, with Adam as the main game and Eve as an add-on. But Genesis 1 made sure that the first thing was first, that male and female both image God equal in dignity and worth. Okay? Just remember that that's their framing. That's the, the way that it worked. Now, when the man meets his new partner, Adam, oh, he is pleased. Oh, yes, I like this, he says. But not because of the very pleasing physical differences between them, which I imagine would have been very pleasing. What does he say? Genesis 2, 23. What, is, what does Adam say? I think I've got this here. Did I get it? Am I smart enough? No, nope, not smart enough. All right, Genesis 2.23, I'll read it out to you. It says, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you hear what he's caring about? She's the same as me. Bone of my bones, someone I can talk to, a friend, intimacy, connection, relationship. This is so good. Not, wow, I love the differences. Nice work, God. He wanted intimacy, connection, relationship, something we all need like oxygen. He'd been through all the animals and none of them had that. And now Adam has finally met his match. Someone on his level, his match. And I do just want to note here for you single people that romantic interest wasn't really the first good thing about Eve. Marriage was the secondary to human friendship. Paul wasn't married. And if that's a bit meh for you, because you think Paul's pretty lame. Jesus wasn't married either. <laughs> and he's the most joyful and fulfilled human who has ever lived. But to the non-marrieds here, the married people here will need you to help them be good husbands. So you need, you need to know this stuff. 
Maybe one day, who knows, you might find yourself married. Maybe you'd need to know it then too. So body of Christ, together, we need you to know this stuff, to help us together. All right. Um, now to verse 18. In God's kindness, Eve is different to Adam, though. In verse 18, she has made a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. Now, exactly what that means is quite important. Uh, and the emphasis, again, at least a part of the emphasis, once again, on the equality. There's actually no sense of inferiority in that Hebrew word, helper. In fact, that word gets translated, that word is actually used to refer to God. God is Israel's helper in, in, in later on in Scripture. You see, she is fit to help him, whereas the animals were not fit to help him for his role. She is woman and not man. Of the same stuff, the same order, the same honour, but built differently. And it's this, this simultaneous sameness and difference that makes her just the right kind of help. Adam is really going to struggle to be fruitful and multiply with no Eve. That will be a very difficult thing. It's only together and because of their differences and acknowledging those differences that, that their marriage is able to fully achieve God's purposes for the world. And yet here, just note... She is not to be ruled by him. At least not, not like he rules the animals. She is to rule with him. Which just makes Genesis 3 all the more tragic. You see, in Genesis 3, the first married couple had their joyful connection. They had their nakedness with freedom and no shame, their joyful vulnerability and connection, and it was turned into a shamed hiding from God and each other. Because they didn't trust that when God gave them instructions that they were good. They took fruit from the tree that God said would kill them. And they're like, no, this looks good. God's not to be trusted. Like, I think that's going to be good for us. And we see some of the awful consequences of this in Genesis 3.16. So the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You see, now that sin has entered their marriage, the relationship has warped. Somehow Eve's desire for her husband and his headship, instead of being connected and beautiful, are at odds with each other. The desire is still there, but it's twisted. This, this is the, the beginning of masculinity, masculinity that you could genuinely call toxic. At the fall, not at the beginning, at the start. Now, all of the worst of patriarchy entered this world as a consequence of failing to trust God's generosity and the goodness of his commands. I'll say that again because it's worth thinking about the, both sides of it. All of the worst of patriarchy entered this world as a consequence of failing to trust God's generosity and the goodness and the love in his commands. Which I think helps us because it means that there is, we, we, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the undoing of the worst in this world is going to be also by trusting God's generosity and the goodness and love in his commands. So whatever we hear, whether we like it or not, Worth hearing that, that God's commands are for our good. All right, next, next, part, of this, next part of the series. We're, we're going on in the picture of marriage through the Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned, God set up a rescue team for the world, Israel. Though it wasn't, it wasn't like the Avengers, not a team of randoms. God called a family to solve the world's problems, a marriage to solve the world's problems. He called a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he promised that he would save the world from evil through that family. And yet as time went on, the family of God didn't trust in God's goodness either. Sin was so deep in the human heart that they thought that other gods might be better to them than the true God. 
and they were unfaithful to the God who had made them. And, and here's where marriage shows up again, but actually in a different way to before now. Now we're in the, now we're in the dark part of the drama. It's not, it's not a rom-com here. Marriage is broken. See, Israel said, I can get a better offer with another God. They're offering better, he's offering better crops. I get this famine from Yahweh. And, I've got to... and they cheat on him. Uh, if you look at Jeremiah 3 verse 1, this is God's description of what's happened to him with humanity, particularly with Israel. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? He's saying, why would you go back? That's just silly. But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Oh, you're going to return to me now, do you, declares the Lord. Verse 2. Look up to the barren heights, which is where they would go to offer sacrifices to various gods. Is there any place where you've not been ravished? By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You've defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. I'm just skipping over it because it's powerful and... Oh, maybe I should stop and let it sit, but whew. I chose, can I just reassure you, I chose the least provocative of the passages in the Old Testament that discuss God's feelings of Israel's unfaithfulness to him in the terms of unfaithful marriage. It's warped. They cheated on him. And when God wants to talk about what it's like for his people to be like that towards him when he's given them so much, he uses the metaphor of an abandoned lover, a husband of a serially unfaithful wife, to describe how his family treated him. Marriage started as the good image of God, was then warped. A new marriage was promised as a solution to the problem, but then they were unfaithful to God again and again. But God does not give up on marriage. What was evil, he then turns to good. You see, when Jesus comes as the husband who's been cheated on, he frees his wife from the stocks that she was put in to shame her and puts himself in there instead. The, the faithful party in the relationship, God, put up for public ridicule because of his great love for the one who repeatedly put him to shame. That's what the cross is. The cross is God stepping into the stocks so that everyone can laugh and point at him as if he was the shamed one, so that his bride wouldn't have to go through that, though she deserved it. See, marriage started as the good image of God, got warped. Marriage then promised to solve the problem, but they're unfaithful and made it worse. And God showed himself to be the great lover, the husband whose faithfulness was greater than the unfaithfulness of his wife, despite the cost to him. So the reason why we've gone through that powerful story is I want you to see the importance of marriage in Scripture. It's power as an image of the incredible love of God for faithless humanity. The, the lover who scorned the shame of not giving up on his girl, he wouldn't give up on the girl who kept rejecting him. So much so that when describing us meeting him again in heaven, the Bible uses a wedding as the most apt metaphor that he can think of to, to describe what it'll be like for us to get together with him. It is the great image in Revelation. It's why despite marriage being a good and a safe place for kids to be blessed and the joy of sexual expression, marriage has got a way bigger purpose than those things, than your romance and your dates. The love of the lover, demonstrating that to the world, the, the trust of the beloved, that has the purpose of preaching, preaching a message about Christ's faithfulness to the church and the church's appropriate role as the trusting beloved. 
That, that's what it's for in the big picture of the universe. The love of the lover and the trust of the beloved has the purpose of preaching a message about Jesus' faithfulness to the church and the church's appropriate role as a trusting beloved. Right? And I don't know if you've ever thought about your marriage as having that purpose or if you think about that every day, that's why I'm actually treating my husband this way, my wife this way. But, but, but I get it when the world, who does not have this narrative for the universe, does not get why we do marriage the way we do it. They can't, because that's not their story. That, that, it's about God before it's about us. See, I'm to take seriously the love of my wife, despite whatever barriers may come between us. Even if, sometimes, those barriers come from her. To make that beautiful to the world that people would look at the way that I treat my wife, the way that all of us treat our wives, and would, the world would think, man, that's beautiful. He just does not care about how he's treated. He just loves. If the God that he follows is like that towards me, wow, okay. Maybe that God's, okay, all right. Maybe that God's worth at least checking out. Wow. And our wives are to take trusting that love Seriously. So that people think, wow, I see the way that she gets joy out of being loved like this and just, just goes with it, willing to trust. If that's what it's like to be with this God, that I get to just trust and just, just, just enjoy and, and, and sort of vulnerably receive this love, there's something beautiful there to be had too. Now, we do this in our marriages, actually, strangely, because one day um, our marriage will end. Melissa and my marriage will end. Marriage isn't forever. I'm not sorry. We're not going to break up. But like marriage, one day, one of us will die. And marriage is a temporary gig. Still death us do part. Because there's a bigger marriage coming that's going to be way better than anyone who trusts in Jesus. We're going to be the bride together. And talk about gender issues. Like, you know, if you're a girl, you're a son of God. One day I'm going to be a bride of Christ. You know, like it's... <laughs> We together, sorry, not just a bad joke. We, we together collectively are Jesus' bride. Don't, don't worship marriage, especially if you're not in one. Goodness. It cannot and will not save you. Its job is to point to Jesus. All right. The word of God in Colossians. I've successfully avoided it so far till now. Three, three verse 18 and 19. We have to approach this text for what it is. And not as a text about what's relevant for us. So this is not a text about submission. And it wasn't written to 2020 Hobart. It was written to first century Colossae. It wasn't controversial to them, or at least the submission part wasn't. In the family context, if there was a husband involved, he was the head of that family. He was the pater familias. That's just a given. What we've got to hear is what was God saying into that culture? What does Paul see as the dangers for each sex the things that they could do that would be unfitting for people who are in Christ. Well, here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Align yourself with him. Support the direction that he is setting for the family as is fitting in the Lord. Jesus doesn't cease to be the Lord in that household. Like Colin's still right, daddy is not the boss, uh-uh. Mummy's not the boss, uh uh, Jesus is the boss. But it seems here that Paul saw the danger that wives could sort of take that, oh no, Jesus is a boss, in such a way as would cut the legs out from underneath the husband. You could do that that way, couldn't you, if you were a wife? 
Wives, please don't undermine your husbands, subtly or overtly. Support him. The word means to come into alignment with and generally underneath, to get on board with him. There's the question, how could this possibly be good for me? Hopefully that's been partly answered with the, um, partly answered with the big picture story of, of, of marriage, but we'll pick it up more later as we go. Now to husbands. It seems here that Paul saw the dangers of power well before the postmodernists were around, right? He was critiquing toxic masculinity well before it was a, a thing and weirdly misused in our culture. Seeing the danger of men who lacked accountability, taking their frustrations out on the less powerful, he said, men, love your wives. As I say to you now, actively. Don't just cruise through life enjoying all the blessings that come along with her presence as long as she doesn't complain too much. Don't just enjoy her stuff but not cherish her. We're going to love them in, a, in an active, in an, in an initiative-taking way. Quick tip. Why don't you ask her what would love her well? What she would appreciate? What are you almost scared to... You could ask her this question. Hey, honey, what are you almost scared to ask for? But just that would be a bit of... Because maybe it could be a sacrifice for me or you're not sure whether it's a good thing to do. Just... What if you could let yourself go wild? What would you love to ask for in this relationship that would make you feel incredibly valued and cherished? Because remember, my job is to love you like Jesus loved the church and lay my life down for you. Give me a chance. And husbands, give it to her, even if it costs you. If, it's, if, if, it's, if this is a God-honoring thing. Now, secondly, husbands, don't be harsh with your wife. There's just no excuses. And I, I, I point ten fingers at myself as I say this. Just because you feel angry or frustrated or like you've been mistreated, that does not give you permission to be harsh with your wife. There's, there's no, oh, if you feel like, you know, it's the right thing here in this passage. Uh, secondly, the, the, there's the second element to this word. The, the word here is actually embitter, literally, right? To make bitter. Now, there's something interesting there. It means that if you find your wife wilting under your words, even if you think they're true, there's something gone wrong, hasn't there? If she crumbles when you speak or look at her. You see, the word embitter, it's, it's, a, it's a cause of condition in someone else. And if you see that happening, that you're causing this negative, life-sapping, not life-giving thing happening when your words... It doesn't matter if every single word you've said is completely true and correct in the argument. That doesn't matter. What's to matter to you is not how true your words are. What's to matter to you is her in that moment. If she's pulling back as you speak, if she's defending and getting scared as you speak, if she's feeling injured as you speak. And we need to be looking for this actively, not just saying, oh, I didn't notice anything. Oh, she seemed fine, whatever. We need to be looking for this. Because, of course, if we're speaking harshly to our wives, they're not really going to feel like they can show signs of that out of getting more harshness in response. We've got to be on the lookout for the signs that are making, my life, making life harder for my wife with my words and my approach with my words. Now, look, if you find that this is you, there's a beautiful thing for you. Uh, your, your great God, Jesus Christ, died for you and your sins are forgiven. And he's coming for you despite the sins that you've made. So confess to her, apologize to her, tell her you're going to go talk to a trusted brother from church to workshop ways to love her better in the future, and then do that 
and then commit to the results of that chat. Could there possibly be times when you go against her wishes for her own good? That's possible. It's possible. But if you did, can I suggest that you would have had many, many chats with her to ensure that you're not embittering her as you do so? That she feels loved by you so doing, even if she disagrees with you. And that she was delighted with the way you went about it. And if I was going to do that, I'd actually confide in... this. Listen carefully here. I'd confide in a trusted older Christian man and a trusted older Christian woman. Just to make sure I'm not being an idiot. I do that sometimes. All right, last bit on this. Did you notice that it doesn't say something? It doesn't say anywhere here, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. I can't find that anywhere in this text. Now, it certainly helps a husband to love you if you tell him what you want. Oh, sorry, I missed this line. Sorry. Wives, it doesn't say... Tell your husbands that they have to love you. Now, it helps your husband to love you well if you tell him what you want. Can I just say, that's actually a godly thing to do that. It's an ungodly thing not to be honest and to name your desires. They could even be bad. I want this. I want the Ferrari. <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, Rafa obviously wants the Ferrari there. Um, and, 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 but you might work that out together, but name your desires. And then you can work out together with the, with the, the loving instruction and encouragement of your husband and you instructing him and like this mutuality of this discussion. You work out if it's the right thing to actually have happen or not, but name those things. In fact, I think it's a part of submitting to your husband's love to let him know what makes you feel loved. Wives, please do this for us. This helps us. It encourages us to be better men and gives us the wisdom to direct our efforts in ways that are more life-giving to you. Please do this. But it's not your job to enforce it. To make snarky comments if he fails. It's not going to help him. Don't shame him out. Bring it to his attention. Please, you must do that, but don't shame him out. That won't do you any good. Submit to him. Husbands, it is not your role to enforce submission. Submission is not submission if it's not freely given. It's not. You're like, you're like someone who has grasped for air and in the very act of grasping to grab the air, you lost the thing that you grabbed for, if that's what you want. See, if you rule your house with an iron fist, instead of laying down your life for your family with the love of Christ, brothers, you'll have the session of Seoul Presbyterian Church to have words with you. We would be wrong if we didn't. We'll be having words to love and lovingly correct you and protect your family. If that's how you want to live. God's word asks us to do that. Now, why would we do all this? Why on earth would you, would you take this stuff seriously? Because it doesn't make any sense if, if the Bible's not true, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, if marriage isn't about God, God and his people. We do it so that God will be glorified. We do it so that his goodness in redemption will be displayed, that the, the great lover who would not take rejection and unfaithfulness from humanity for an answer, but pursued his bride, no matter how bad it felt, no matter how hard it was, and he won her love back. He won us back, right? He won us back. Now, if our marriages, with a little bit of explaining, <laughs> it'll need a little bit of explaining, I know, could make people feel that God was like that towards them. That's a goal. Take off.